Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey listeners, it's David, your host. Just a quick note to say that this chat with Emmanuel Axe was done before we knew that we were doing a podcast. I was doing research for a project and Manny graciously agreed to talk to me. And as you'll hear, he's awesome. So here it is. It's a little shorter than our other episodes and not as structured, but I think anytime you have a chance to hear someone like Emmanuel Axe play or speak, you should listen. Emmanuel Axe is one of the most celebrated pianists of his generation. His solo and chamber music recordings have earned him eight Grammy Awards, and throughout his 50-year career, he's never stopped looking for new ways to make the piano sing. The thing I love about the piano is that there's no one sound. We try to make it sound like a singer, sometimes like a percussion section, and sometimes like a grand string ensemble. So that's where piano sound comes from. It comes from listening to what you'd like to hear. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, the podcast that explores the art of artistry. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. As a musician in New York City, I get to perform with some of the world's greatest artists every night. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with these inspiring performers as we lift the veil on talent to hear about their process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. Hi. Manny, hi. Good to see you. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Good. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to do this. I hope I'm not keeping you from anything. Oh, I, I did everything today. I've practiced for three hours. I took a, a three and a half mile walk. I had salad for lunch with no bread. I've done everything right today. <laughs> That's excellent. Sounds very productive. So yeah. how shall we do this? Well, I have a few questions. I guess we'll start at the beginning. What's your earliest memory of the piano? Uh, my earliest memory was that I was born in the Soviet Union, and we had somehow in the apartment that we took over, you know, it was a crazy... It was a crazy way to live. There were two families in one small apartment, and, and that was par for the course over there with, with virtually no housing to be had. 
And for some reason, there was a little upright piano in the living room of that apartment. And nobody played, really, but I kind of got intrigued by it. And my dad was an amateur musician, so he saw, you know, maybe I was interested, and that was it. That's my earliest memory. So essentially, your father was your first teacher? He started you off? He was a musical guy, so he could he could point things out. But I had a teacher when I was six. You know, they got me a teacher from the neighborhood whom I studied with for a few months. And then when uh, my dad saw that I really was interested, he took me to a central music school, you know, because they had a system, they probably still do, of various elementary schools that were connected to a discipline. So the elementary school that I went to had music as a discipline. That was when I was about six. And then when I was seven, my family moved to Warsaw, to Poland. And again, there was the same kind of situation. There was a music school, which still exists, on a street called Miodowa Ulica, which is Honey Street. And I've been there uh, a few times. I guess you could call it a charter school, but their, their system was to have various emphases. You know, some were sports, some were music, some were science, you know, depending. Mm-hmm. So with that kind of specialized education, were you expected to be this really serious, dedicated piano student at such a young age? Did your teachers demand a lot from you? I think there was an emphasis from my teachers who were very kind. I, a lady in, in the Soviet Union and a lady in Poland until I was about 10 and we moved to the West. They were very kind people, but also managed to somehow make it very serious wonderful teachers. They got that combination, I think, kind of just right. Uh, so there were times when I'm sure there were times when I didn't feel like like doing it, but they were they were fairly insistent. And my father was fairly insistent, you know, on, on doing it every day, but not a lot. I didn't practice a lot when I was a kid. And at what point along the way did you think, this is this is what I want to do? I think around the time I was 13, 14, maybe. I started thinking about making this my life. I started having fantasies about playing on the stage of a big hall or with a big orchestra. And I had gone already many, many times to Carnegie Hall. And I liked that, you know, I liked the look of it from from the balcony. And I thought it must be wonderful to be down there. And when I was 12 years old, I still remember, I, I was I was very lucky. There was a, a wonderful man named Stuart Warco. You, I'm sure you didn't know him, but he was the, the Carnegie Hall manager. And he saw me hanging around backstage, maybe, or at rehearsals, and he asked me, you know, what do you play? I said, I play the piano. And he said, well, you want to try the piano on the stage? There was a piano on the stage. They kept one in the corner of the hall when it wasn't being used. So I actually, I got to play a a little bit on that stage when I was 12 or so on the stage of Carnegie with nobody in in it, of course. That's amazing. And was the sound of that piano in an empty Carnegie Hall just music to your ears? I was struck by the look much more than the sound. I wasn't so aware of the sound, I don't think. When you looked up from that stage, saw the place, uh, you know, it's, well, you, you've, you've done it. Yeah, it's beautiful. I think the best view is from the stage looking out. Sure. Which pianist did you go see there and who made an impact on you? Rubinstein played there just a few months after we got to New York. Uh, him I heard endlessly, uh, over and over and over, all the way through until I was maybe 26 
I think that was the last year that Rubenstein played a recital in New York. And you heard him and you said, that's it. That's, that's what I want to do. That was the fantasy, to see these people in tailcoats. I didn't know it was a tailcoat, but a uniform and appearing there and people listening to this and hearing beautiful music. So it was the whole, the combination of the music really affecting me, the whole atmosphere of the place and of the attention that was being paid to the musician and all of that, you know, for somebody in a different profession would be like going to Yankee Stadium. You look down there and you say, I would love to, I would love to be on the field. Right. Put me in coach. I'm ready to go. Um, at this point, you're a dedicated piano student, and this is everything in your life. Did you ever feel like there weren't enough hours in the day to fit in a social life and having friends and being a normal teenager? No, most of the, the thing is by then, most of my friends really were in music. I was, I was going to Saturday Juilliard Prep, and uh, those were the people I met. So when I was 15, I met my friend who's my friend now, Garrett Olson. And we spent a lot of time together. Uh, we went to a lot of concerts together. There were a lot of other kids at the school, violinists, cellists. So that was really my life. And did you play sports? I would imagine just the fear of jamming or breaking a finger would keep you far away from the basketball court, for example. No, I used to try and play basketball. And so I jammed my fingers a few times. You know, I'd sprain one finger, sprain another. I once fell off a bike and hurt my elbow. Uh, I think just a chip, it wasn't broken. But yeah, a few things. I'm generally careful, uh, but not specifically of my hands. I, I think I'm, I'm much more careful now because of my age. I would be on stage, for example, and, and during rehearsal, you know, jump down and, and listen to the orchestra. I would jump from the stage down, you know. I don't do that anymore. You know, this past year, I've been watching Jacques Pepin videos, you know, for cooking. So he's the one that he's Mr. Careful. Tells you about the grip, you know, with the cutting of the knife and so forth. But but I, I don't really worry so much about the, the... I've never worried about my hands particularly. Right. I guess it's good to not be obsessive about things that you can't control anyway. Well, I have obsessive compulsive syndrome to a very small degree. So, for example... I know the number of steps in every subway station that I use in New York because I always have to step off with my left foot. Okay, hold on. So if you're getting off the subway at 66th Street, Lincoln Center. That has 16 steps. Okay, I got, I got to write this down. But they may have, you know, you, you have to remember, they may have repaired it. Did that on 86th Street and they went from 17 to 18. Really? They changed starting out with a different different foot. So it's a couple of things, but it's it's very small. I don't I don't have a, a a huge amount of it, but you know I understand a little of it. But that's my only, that's really my only foible. Well, it seems to be working out for you. Let me ask you: since you don't travel with your own instrument as a pianist, among the different pianos you play throughout the world, what makes one particular piano sound and feel different from another? When you play, I'm sure you have exactly the same thing as I do. When you play an instrument, whatever you do physically is also reflected immediately by the sound you're getting in your ear from what you're playing. If I play a chord on the piano, I immediately adjust my hands 
So it would be impossible for me, for example, to play physically the same on two pianos where one is a light touch, one is a hard touch, or one where the hammers are softer and the hammers are harder. I don't think it's possible to that degree to be mechanically that correct to say I'm using the exact same weight on this and on this. So basically it's you reacting to the mechanical nature of the instrument that's changing the sound? Yes. I mean, it's the keyboard, the the hammer, the speed of the action, you know, all those things play into it. The sound you're getting and the feeling of your hands. And that's the connection you're looking for. This is a beautiful piano means the connection between what you're doing and what comes back at you is a very pleasing one. So there's no magic in the wood of the piano. The magic is in how you're playing it, the way the hammer hits the string. Exactly. I'll give you an example of what happens all the time. You go to the Steinway basement, you pick a piano, you say, ah, this, I love this piano. You get to the hall where you're playing and you say they sent the wrong piano and they show you, well, here's the number, you know, it's number 125. Right. 125. And you say, okay, but this doesn't sound like that. So the hall feedback to your ear is another thing, which is, which is why, for example, I've stopped picking pianos to take to Carnegie Hall. I just play what's in Carnegie Hall. I've had too many experiences of where I've gone to pick the piano and it arrives and I said, this is, this is not what I picked. I don't like it. Do you ever get piano anxiety over not knowing which piano is where and what the piano is going to be like when you show up to play it? You know, I think I actually worry about it a lot less than my colleagues, uh, some colleagues. Garrick and I are very much the same in that respect. We, we don't really worry about it. Our, our feeling is we will come there. If there's a choice of pianos, we'll pick the one we like better. If there's no choice, we'll play what there is. So we don't worry about it. And other people, I, I have friends who write to me, you know, and they'll say, I know you played this year in Schenectady. I have a recital there 12 months from now. How's the piano? You know, and I, uh, so I write back, I say, oh, the piano seemed good to me. You know, I like the piano. Of course, in 12 months, I don't know what it's going to sound like, first of all. Of all, I don't really know how he is going to feel that day. You know, these are all... So all of these all of these issues are very difficult for certain people and easy in the sense of trusting to fate for other people, which I do. I, when I go to Cleveland, I don't worry because they have good pianos. And that's the other thing, that when you have a situation where you know it's a good piano, you can adjust. It just, it kind of happens. You know, you say, oh, this is a wonderful piano. It's quite bright. I so I don't have to do this or I don't have to do that. The bass is very big. So I should be careful not to drown out my fifth finger of the right hand. You know, it sounds like you enjoy this challenge, really. It, it's like it's a puzzle that you're putting together while you're performing. That's absolutely how I feel. It's a creative process. It, it, it helps you hear things that you wouldn't hear otherwise. That's also important, you know, where you suddenly realize 
that the tune comes out differently here, maybe that's good. Or maybe it's not good and I have to do something about it. So you make friends with the instrument. The instrument becomes, for a pianist, I think the instrument becomes part of the practicing process. You've been touring for decades playing in the world's greatest concert halls. Do you have any favorite places to play? I wouldn't say a favorite place. I, you know, I, it's the usual suspects. You, you probably know the same halls I do, and you like the same halls. Carnegie Hall is a great place to play. The Concertgebouw in Amsterdam is a wonderful hall. The Berlin Hall is wonderful. You know, th there are a number. Disney Hall in, in L.A. is wonderful. You know, sometimes people will say, this is such a wonderful hall, you can just play. I don't believe there's any place like that. I think wherever you are, you have to make some adjustment to where you are. Now, there's no ideal. I've never considered the fact that when I hear you perform, you're not playing on your own personal instrument. I, I mean, I think we, in a way, pianists grow up with it because we never carry our instrument, which, which of course is a huge difference. So it's a different thing. You have different ways of, of dealing with it. At least you know you'll never leave a piano in a cab. I don't. I never have to pay overweight baggage. I don't. <laughs> I don't right. have about where it where it goes on the you know in the rack above me. It's, so. it's stressful. Trust me. All of those things I know. I know. I've seen it because I traveled a lot of my life with with yo-yo. When we go, the amount of grief you go through with the cello it, it's unbelievable. Even for him, who he's a very famous guy, it's not easy. You know. <laughs> right. Many instruments can be described by what they are. Like a trumpet is brassy or a drum is percussive. How would you describe the sound of a piano? Multi-voiced, many voices. That's the big difference for us between the piano and virtually everybody else. We are the closest thing to what an orchestra sounds like. The thing I love about the piano is that there's no one sound. It's the most chameleon-like instrument. Uh, we try to make it sound sometimes like a singer, sometimes like a glockenspiel, sometimes like a percussion section, and sometimes like a grand string ensemble. All of those things. There's a recording of, of Horowitz playing the F-sharp minor polonaise of Chopin that you should hear sometime. I think he actually gets the piano to literally sound like a trumpet. The place that goes... There's that one note, that A. Don't ask me how he does it, but it sounds... You know, listen to that performance, one of the greatest performances on the piano of anything ever. I will absolutely listen to that. Once we spoke backstage when you came to the Met Opera after a performance, I remember how floored you were by the singers and how beautifully they sang. How do you capture that lyricism in your own playing when every time you hit a note on a keyboard, it disappears immediately? I don't know what the physical side of it is. And in, in fact, most pianists think I'm, I'm an idiot because I, I don't believe that there is anything you can do to change the sound of the instrument. In other words, you hit the note and that's it. <laughs> You're done. Uh, 
you can and the only thing you can control is how hard and how fast right so basically what i'm listening for is what happens to the next note and i remember horovitz saying once i think he wrote it somewhere said it somewhere he said the art of piano playing is the art of the second note and i always thought that was unbelievably perceptive because you know there are people that talk about well if you do this with the hand i always think it makes no difference take a, a a pencil and use the eraser end and do the exact same thing and you'll get the sound of the piano it's just getting from there to the next one <laughs> and that's a matter really of getting your ear to tell you what sounds right it's a very unspoken and instinctive thing I, and and there are people who do it's it's what they want to hear you know so for example i've almost never played any music of prokofiev i'm really bad at it i i love the music you know it's fantastic stuff but i don't have a feel somehow it doesn't connect for me to make that sound which which is a kind of attack which i think you need so i don't try to do it i i maybe i could have you know 35 years ago schooled myself to do it i didn't but i think that's a that's almost a, a kind of part of your being and that's so that's where that's where piano sound comes from it comes from listening to what you'd like to hear i hope you enjoyed this episode of speaking soundly Be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow me on Instagram at David Kraus Trumpet and go to our website artfulnarrativesmedia.com for show notes, links, and information on all of our guests. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.